0: Hello there, this is episode 44 of Forgotten Cello Music. Episode 44 is a reading of the violin cello and its history. The chapter introduction, which is the history of the viola da gamba. And it includes pages one through 43. When it comes to the history of the cello, Joseph Vasilevsky has the authority. He is the original author who wrote at length and in such detail about the cello. Without this seminal work, the searching of forgotten cello music would be much more of a blind search, kind of at random. And it's because of this book I have found a more systematic and organized approach to digging up and recording music by long-forgotten cellists and, of course, non-cellists who wrote for the cello these cellists composed so much music for their instrument and i'm always astounded when i discover more and more and more that has been uploaded to imslp and other catalogs that i occasionally peruse through so this work i owe some gratitude for i think it, it's logical in the process of disseminating the the music of the forgotten cellists and also the knowledge about them and about the instrument of course, and how they came to be involved with cello and how it, it uh, helped develop the repertoire of the cello. For anyone interested in the backstory of the cello, this book is certainly for you. Vasilevsky's efforts and attention to inclusivity shine through. It gives us a broader picture of the so often neglected. Most of us are just not aware of the vast numbers of cellists and how much repertoire had been written for the cello early on. And that very early on, the cello gained adherence to and enthusiastic proponents of this magnificent addition to the violin family of instruments, the cello, or as it originally was called, the violoncello. Without delaying the reading any longer, I begin with the title and then directly to the first chapter entitled Introduction The History of the Viola da Gamba. This is a complete reading of The Violoncello and Its History by Wilhelm Joseph von Vasilevsky, rendered into English by Isabella S. E. Stigand. London and New York, Novello, Ewer and Company, 1894. Introduction Viola da Gamba The history of the violoncello and violoncello playing is connected in its earliest stages up to a certain point with that of the viola da gamba and its forerunner, the basso di viola, of the 16th century. This last-named instrument formed the bass in the string quartets of that time, to which also belonged, according to the Italian designation, the discant viola, or violetta, as well as the viola d'alta, and di tenore. In Germany these instruments were called discant, alto, tenor, and bass viols. The terms viola and violin were at that time consequently synonymous. From the foregoing remarks it will be perceived that it is a question not of one kind, but of a whole family of stringed instruments. Descriptions and illustrations of them are found in the following music authors of the 16th century Sebastian Verdung, Musica getutscht, 1511. Hans Juden König, eine schöne künstliche Wanderweisung, und so weiter, 1523. Martin Agricola, Musica Instrumentalis Deutsch, 1528. Hans Gerla, Musica Deutsch, Deutsch, 1532. Ottomar Luskinius, Nachtgal, Musurgia, Siu Praxis Musicae, 1536. And Genasi del Fontego, Regola Rubertina, 1542. Agricola's and Gerla's works appeared in various editions. The work of the former, as well as "Luscinius Musurgia, are partly reproductions of Virdung's Musica Getouct. According to the descriptions of the above-named authors, violas or violins were of two kinds. Some of them had no bridge. Others, on the contrary, were provided with one. For the object before us, the last only claim our consideration. Of which, as well as of the bridgeless violins, there were four different examples. The alto and the tenor were of the same size, but of different methods of tuning. The so-called violas, fiddles, were provided with six strings, which were called, like the six lute chords, Great heart Bombarte, Middle Ditto, Tenor, Small Ditto, Countertenor, Middle String, Great Mean, Vocal String, Small Mean, and Quint, String, Treble. The Great heart was left out in those instruments provided with five strings only, in Italy, the six strings were called Basso, Bordone, Tenore, Mezzalano, or Mezzana, Soltanella, or Soltana, and Canto. In France, according to Mercenus, Sisiem, Chonchesiem, Quatresiem, Troisiem, Seconde, and Chanterelle, the same author gives for the violas the names Desus, Ot Contra, Tai, and Bas Contra. In Judin König's and Hans Gerle's works are found the accompanying illustrations of stringed instruments provided with a bridge. Their identity is unmistakable, though they differ from each other in many peculiarities of form. Both instruments represent the so called big fiddle, or basso di viola. The tuning was that of the lute, which, as an older stringed instrument, served in this respect as its model. Only in regard to the pitch did any difference exist. Judenkönig makes it thus. Here is an illustration of tunings on a musical staff. First, there is a treble clef with an A down uh, fourth to an E, switching to a bass clef with a B down to a G, down to a D and down to a low A. Then Hans Gerla, on the contrary, writes it thus on a musical staff with only a bass clef, a high D, A, E, C, G, and a low D. Here the pitch of the second is a fifth lower than the first. Jurgen König's pitch represents the tenor and that of Gerla the bass. Agricola says in his Musica Instrumentalis, regarding the height of pitch for the lute, Zeuch die quinceit so hoch du magst, dass sie nicht reißt, wenn du sie schlägst. Draw up the fifth string as high as you may, that it may not be broken when on it you play. And in Hans Neusiedler's Lute Book 1535 it is said, He who wishes to learn how to tune the lute, let him draw up the quint string not too high and not too low, a medium height, as much as the strings will bear. Similar instructions are to be found in Gerla's Musica Teutsch. The capability of tension of the quint string was consequently the guide for the pitch in tuning the lute. Beyond this there was as yet no normal pitch, and in stringed instruments it was in every case so maintained. In playing with wind instruments, the stringed instruments had, therefore, to adapt the pitch to them. The great violins were, in the first half of the 16th century at least, according to all appearance, played in two ways. From the drawing in König's treatise, a mode of handling is seen which requires no further explanation. That the handling of the great violin, represented by König, without any explanation is treated as... Of not exceptional appears also from the accompanying vignette of other publication of that period. The bass viol performing with the two ludists represents the same position and manner of playing as the woodcut in Juden König's treatise, with the sole difference that he is holding the instrument in the left hand, whereas the peg box of the instrument, bent sharply backwards of Juden König's player rests on his shoulder. It is very evident that in both cases scarcely more could be executed than the simplest bass accompaniment. More, however, was eventually to be produced according to the treatment of the great violin prescribed by Gerla. He says regarding it, When you have, according to my instructions, beschreiben, noted, tuned and drawn up the violin, and wish to begin playing, proceed thus. Take the neck of the instrument in the left hand, and the bow in the right. Sit down, and press the viola between the legs, that you may not strike it with the bow. And take care when you play that you draw the bow directly and evenly over the strings, neither too far from nor too near the bridge, on which the strings lie. And that you do not draw the bow over two strings at once, but only over that which is placed under the Figuring in the tablature, and this must be especially attended to. It appears, according to Gerle's instructions, that the instrument of which he speaks was a so-called knee violin, in Italian viola da gamba. It seems, however, that in the 16th century this description was not in common use. Hans Gerle, a native of Nuremberg, born about 1500, had already received important consideration during the first twenty years of the sixteenth century, not only as a skillful player, but also as a maker of lutes and viols. Yet the making of these instruments, and especially of viols, had already been carried out at a much earlier period than others. The oldest fiddle or viola maker of whom we have any mention is a certain Carlino, who, when according to Fatih's account, lived and worked in Brescia. It is most probable that he was a German, or at least of German extraction, for the name Kerl, in every kind of variation, both as a common and individual or family name, had been constantly in use among the German races. In the German dictionary of the Brothers Grimm are indicated the various forms of the name Kerl, K-E-R-L. There is Kerl, formerly Karl. Carols, Curls, Curlis, Curly, Curlin, Kerel, Kurl, Kerl, and Kirl. They are of German origin and are derived from Middle or Low German, whereas the Anglo Saxon equivalents are Karl C A R L or Carol. Originally the word Kerl Kerl K E R L according to Grimm was synonymous with man, man, and also with eyeman, husband. But it was also used as a family or tribal name, as is proved from the names Jacob de Kerl, 16th century, Johann Kaspar von Kerl, also written Kerl, K-E-R-L, uh, Kerl and Schell, born 1628, and Vitus Kerl in the 18th century. Another form of Kerl, curl, Kerlin, was, according to Grimm, used in the 16th and 17th centuries. Who can doubt, then, that the Prussian instrument maker Carlino was of German origin? He was, evidently, originally called Kerl curl or Kärlin, to which name was added by the Italians either the diminutive syllable Inno or the vowel O. Oh. It cannot be of Italian origin, for the Italian has no Fetti informs us that Carlino must be considered as the founder of the school of Brescian viola makers, which, as the oldest in Italy from the middle of the sixteenth century, attained such a great reputation through Gaspar da Salo and his reputed pupil, Giovanni Paolo Magini. If what appears so extremely probable has any real foundation to a German, or at least to a man of German extraction, must be justly conceded the merit of having, in a measure, been the originator of the art of Italian stringed instrument-making, which later on developed to the highest point. Further, we learn from Fetty that in the year 1804, a Parisian violin-maker named Coliqueur was in possession of a violin, which had been previously described by the French writer on music, de la Borde, containing... The inscription Joan Carlino an fourteen forty nine. And which originally had been a violo da braccia. Doubtless this remarkable instrument exists at the present time. Feti, who saw it himself, describes its quality of tone as agreeably soft and faintly subdued. Among the composers who wrote for the viola, we must mention Giovanni Battista Bonametti, born at Bergamo, at the end of the 16th century. In 1615, he caused to be published in Vienna a collection of trios for two violas and a bass. After Carolino, there appeared in north Italy, as noted, lute and viola makers the monk Pietro Dardelli, in Mantua, about 1500. Gaspard Duif Oprugar in Bologna fifteen ten Venturi Linaroli Linnelli, in Venice fifteen twenty Peregrino Zanetto in Brescia in fifteen thirty and Morglato Morella in Venice fifteen fifty. Amongst these G. Duofo Pruger is evidently of German birth, and remarkable as having, as far as we can see, made the first violins. This artist was in 1515 summoned to France by King Francis I. He at first lived in Paris and then at Lyon. He made some excellent bass viols, gambas, of which two fine specimens are extant in France. A similar basfiole was represented by Raphael in his painting of St. Cecilia. This splendid picture in the Pinacotec at Bologna existed in 1515. After Duifopruger Andreas Amati, 1520 to about 1580, the founder of the Cremona school distinguished himself in the making of violas, as well as violins. His instruments obtained such a great reputation that Charles IX of France, an enthusiastic amateur of music, had 24 violins, 6 tenors, and 8 basses made by him. Amongst the latter, there were several bass viols, like the viola da gamba, the instruments made for Charles IX by Andrea Amati were every one of them destroyed during the French Revolution of 1792. Contemporaneously with Andreas Amati, the manufacture of stringed instruments was vigorously carried on by Gaspar dasalo in Brescia. In Germany, from the second half of the 16th century, Lauxmin Posen, in 1550 at Schongau, subsequently instrument-maker for the Hofkapelle at Munich. Johann Kohl, who at the same time worked at Munich and in 1599 was appointed court instrument-maker there, and also Joachim Tilke, were successively celebrated. The latter lived, as Gerber informs us, at Hamburg from about 1660 to 1730, and even made lutes of real ivory and ebony, the necks of which were inlaid with gold and silver and mother-of-pearl, but one especially with nine pegs of the most beautiful tortoise-shell. Thielke, however, made also violins and excellent gambas. One of these, a costly instrument, which was formerly in the possession of the elector Johann Wilhelm of the Palatinate, was brought from Mannheim to the Duke of Maxburg's Museum at Munich, and thence into the Royal Bavarian National Museum, where it is preserved as a treasure of rare value. The peg box, the fingerboard, the tailpiece, the sides, and the back are all decorated with designs of flowers, foliage, and tendrils, as well as symbolical and allegorical representations taken from mythology, the subjects representing, for the most part, love and music. These decorations and designs are inlaid work in tortoiseshell, ivory, ebony, mother-of-pearl, and silver. Another valuable specimen of the agamba made by Tilke in the year 1701, which belonged to the famous cello virtuoso François Servet, has been described and represented by A.J. Hipkins of Edinburgh in his lately published work musical instruments, historic, rare, and unique. During the second half of the 16th century, there must have been a considerable multiplication of the different kinds of violas then in use, and especially of the bass viol, for Michael Praetorius mentions in his Syntagma Musicum, which appeared in 1614-1620, the following examples. Number one, very large bass viol with four strings, corresponding to the modern contrabasso. Number two, great bass viol de gamba in three different tunings, with five and also six strings, also like the contrabasso. Number three, small bass viol de gamba, five different examples with six, four, and three strings. Answering in tone, in some measure, to the modern violoncello. Number four. Tenor and alto viol de gamba in two different pitches, with six, five, four, and three strings. Answering partly to the violoncello and partly to the modern tenor. Number five. Cant viol de gamba, violetta piccola. Four different kinds with six, five, four, and three strings the tone also partly answering to the tenor and partly to the violin. Number six, viol bastarda, in five different pitches, with six strings, the tone corresponding to that of the cello. Number seven, viola de braccio, four different examples with five and four strings, corresponding in tone partly to the violoncello and partly to that of the tenor. Moreover, Praetorius mentions under the heading viol de braccio viols the discant viol, our modern violin, the small discant viol, tuned a fourth higher than our violin, and two very small viols with three strings, of which the lowest string of the first is a ninth and of the second an octave higher than the G string of the violin. Of the multitude of these different kinds of viols then in use, which later on by manifold improvements were gradually reduced to a smaller number until they resulted in the modern violin and tenor, as well as the violoncello and contrabasso, we must keep in view, for the object of the present work, the viola da gamba, only, which must be regarded as the precursor of the violoncello. Praetorius gives a sketch annexed. Of the so-named instrument, a comparison of these gambas with the sketches of viols by Juden König and Gerle shows what substantial alterations the stringed instrument in question underwent in the course of the second half of the sixteenth century. The neck had assumed a more modern and more convenient form for the technique of the left hand and the sounding board, and had acquired more elegant and attractive outlines. At the same time, the sound holes, corresponding to the curves of the belly, were turned around and placed in a position more agreeable to the eye. Praetorius expresses himself regarding the viola da gamba as follows. Violas, viols, and violunces are of two kinds. Number 1. Viol de gamba number 2. Viol de braccio or de braccio and the former is so called from having been held between the legs. For gamba is an Italian word and means a leg. Le gambe, the legs. And since they have much larger bodies and, on account of the length of the neck, have strings of a much longer tension, they produce a mellower resonance than others. Di braccio, which are held on the arm. The two kinds are distinguished by town musicians. The viol de gamba, by the name of the violas, the viol de braccio, among which Praetorius includes violins, by the name of fiddles or Polish fiddles. The viols de gamba have six strings and are tuned in fourths, and in the middle a third exactly like the six stringed lute. Englishmen, when they play them alone, sometimes tune them a fourth, sometimes a fifth lower, so that the lowest strings are tuned the bass to D, the tenor and alto to A, and the canto to E. On other occasions, each one reckoning by the chamber pitch, a fifth lower. As, for example, the bass to G, G, the tenor and alto to D, the canto to A, and tuning in this manner produces much more agreeable, grander, and more majestic harmonies than when the instruments are at the usual pitch. What Praetorius says regarding the mode and the way of English viol tuning is supplemented by Mercinus in his Harmonie Universelle, 1636-37. to 37. This author says, It should be noted that the Englishmen ordinarily tune their pieces a lower tone than the French in order to hear the softer and more charming harmony and consequently that their sixth chord makes the C sole instead of the noctre makes their D re ground. The pitch then in England was a varying one, though the series of intervals borrowed from the lute to which the gamba like the bass viol was tuned were those which commonly prevailed. In other respects, Mercenus gives no more explicit directions for the handling of the viola de gamba than Praetorius. He does not use this name for the instrument in question, but calls it bas de viol, the French designation viol de jambe, corresponding to the Italian name, appears consequently to have been in vogue later and to have been generally little used. Like Geralt's great fiddle, basso di viola the viola da gamba had also as a rule seven frets on the fingerboard, like the lute, for fixing the tones and semitones. The gamba was played in various ways, and used for a variety of musical purposes, as a solo instrument, as well as in orchestral performances, and as an accompaniment to singing. The way in which it was valued during the first half of the 17th century as an obbligato accompaniment to singing may be seen from the preface to Heinrich Schütz's Historia of the Joyful and Victorious Resurrection of Our Only Saviour, and so on, published in 1623. It is there said, after Schütz has named the instruments which are to be accompanying the parts of the evangelists, but when it can be done, it is better that the organ and everything else should be left out, and instead... Of these, only four viols de gamba, which must also be present, should be used to accompany the parts of the evangelists. It will, however, be necessary that the four viols should be thoroughly practiced with the part of the evangelist in the following manner. The evangelist takes his part to himself, and recites it straight through without any fixed time, just as it seems correct to him, but not holding longer on one syllable, then is custom married to ordinary slow and distinct speaking. The violas must not mark any particular time, but only pay attention to the words recited by the evangelist, and to their parts written below the falso bordone, and so doing they cannot go wrong. A viola may also passagirin amongst the others, as is usual with the falso bordone, and this gives a good effect it appears from the explanation that the gambas were used to support the harmonies of recitatives. The pasha suggested by Schütz of one of the accompanying violas, was nothing else than the usual improvised ornamental coloratura, or diminuendos, used at that time and up to the 18th century. For solo playing, gambas were used not only for the execution of monotone, that is to say, compositions of one part only, but also for several parts, and especially for double stops and chords. The oldest French gambist of whom we have any account is a certain granier, Gerber says, concerning him, that he had been in the service of Queen Margaret of France, and died about 1600, in Paris, and that he was the greatest artist of his time on the gamba. concerning the artistic use of violas, amongst which, as already said, gambas were included. Mercenus writes as follows. Although the viols are capable of all kinds of music, and the examples that I have given for the concert of violins may be useful to them, nevertheless, they require pieces sadder and more serious, and whose measure is longer and later. Hence it is that they are cleaner to accompany the voices, but you can play all kinds of pieces, not just in five parts, as you usually do on violins, but in six, seven, twelve, and as many parts as you want. At the beginning of the above-quoted passage, it is remarked that violas were used for every kind of music, but the use of these instruments for solo playing is not expressly mentioned. In another passage of his work, Marcinus says, however, with regard to gamba playing, and the French performers of his time. No one in France is equal to Magour and Hotman. Men are very skilled in this art. They excel in diminutions and by their incomparable bow features of delicacy and suavity. There is nothing about harmony that they cannot express perfectly, especially when another person accompanies them on the clavichord. But the first performs alone and at the same time too three or more parts on the viol bass, with so many ornaments and a swiftness of the fingers which he seems to care so little about, that nothing of the kind had been heard before by those who played the viol or even by any other instrument. It is here clearly expressed that solo playing on the gamba and notably in several parts was much cultivated and highly appreciated. The mogars, here mentioned by mercenus, Expresses himself regarding his own performances as a gamba player in his réponse fait à un curieux sur le sentiment de la musique d'Italie écrite à Rome le premier octobre 1639, which was published either at the end of 1639 or the beginning of 1640. After having spoken of his intercourse with the artistic family of Baroni during his residence in Rome, he relates. In this worthy house, at the solicitation of these gifted people, I was induced for the first time to exhibit in Rome the talent with which God had endowed me. It happened in the presence of ten or twelve of the most experienced people of Italy, who, after they had listened to me attentively, bestowed on me some eulogiums, not, however, quite ungrudgingly. In order to test me further, the Signora Leonora Baroni introduced me to leave my viola at her house, and begged me to return the following day. This I did, and as it was reported to me by a friend that it is said, I played studied things very well, on the second occasion I gave them so many kinds of preludes and fantasias that they really granted me more appreciation than the first time. The respect, however, of these worthy people did not succeed in winning over the expert's who were somewhat over-refined and reticent to concede applause to a foreigner. It was told me they acknowledged that I played very well alone, and that they had never heard such harmonized viola playing, but they doubted if I was capable of extemporizing a theme and playing variations on it. You know, sir, that in this I am not a little successful. The same words had been told me on the eve of St. Louis's day in the French church, while I was listening to the fine music then being performed there. This determined me, on the next day excited thereto, by the name of St. Louis, all well as for the honor of the nation and the three cardinals, who were present in taking part in the Mass, to ascend into the gallery. When I had been greeted with applause, I was given fifteen to twenty notes, in order to make myself heard, after the third Kyrie, with the accompaniment of a small organ. This subject I treated with such infinite variety that great satisfaction was shown, and the cardinals caused me to be invited to play again after the Agnus Dei. I considered myself very fortunate that I had been able to afford this little pleasure to so distinguished a company. I was given another somewhat more cheerful theme than the first, which I treated with so many variations, and such a diversity of movements that they were extremely astonished, and immediately came to me in order to requite me with eulogiums. On account of the friendship which you cherish for me, my dear sir, I am convinced you will not accuse me of vanity in this digression. I have only made it in order that you may know that If a Frenchman desires to gain a reputation in Rome, he must be well armed, and so much the more, because it is thought here that we are not capable of improvising on a given theme. In fact, whoever plays an instrument deserves no extraordinary consideration unless he shows himself equal to such a demand, especially for the viola, to play on which, by reason of its few strings and the consequent difficulty of playing in parts, is always a thankless task. It is necessary to possess some individual talent in order to be inspired by a subject and expand into beautiful inventions as well as agreeable variations. The capacity to do this requires two real and innate qualifications, namely a lively and strong imagination and skillful execution in order promptly to carry out one's ideas. The Unlimited tribute to, of praise which Mersinus pays to the performances of Mogart renders credible the remarkable account given by himself. Mougar's gamba playing excited in Rome the greatest consideration, because at that time neither there nor anywhere else in Italy was there any prominent artist for that instrument. As regards viola playing, Mogart declares there is no one in Italy who is distinguished for it and in Rome it is very little cultivated. This has greatly astonished me, as formerly they had a certain Horace of Parma, who performed wonderfully on this instrument, and left behind him some excellent compositions, which some of our musicians cleverly made use of for other instruments besides those for which they were composed. The father of the great Italian, Farabasco, was the first to make them known to the English, who from that time have excelled all other nations. From the last words it is to be inferred that Gamba Plain in England was much in vogue at the time of the Mogar, The Farabasco, with the Christian name of Alfonso, mentioned by him who first made the English acquainted with this art, can by no other than the composer of that time referred to by Fati as born in Italy about 1515, He settled in London about 1540, and about the year 1587 appears to have been in the service as Gentilumo of the Duke of Savoy. Amongst English Gambists of distinction must be named Thomas Robinson, Tobias Hume, William Braid, and John Jenkins. Probably they were all pupils of the Elder Farabosco. Concerning Thomas Robinson, who was born in the second half of the 16th century and lived and worked in the beginning of the 17th in London, nothing further is known than that he published a curious work under the title The School of Music, The Perfect Method of True Fingering the Lute, Pandora, or Farion and the Oldagamba, London, 1603. His contemporary, Tobias Hume, was an officer in the English army, and spent much of his time in Sweden. He was reputed one of the cleverest gombists of that period. He caused, to be published in 1605, a work with the following title. The first part of Airs, French, Polish, and others together, some in tablature and some in prick song, with poines, galliards, An almanz for the viol de gamba and other musical conceits for two bass viols, expressing five parts with pleasant reports one from the other, and also for two Liro viols, and also for the Liro viol with two treble viols, or two with one treble. Lastly, for the Liro viol to play alone and some songs to be sung to the viol with the lute, or better with the viol alone, also an invention for two to play upon one viol, composed by Tobias Hume, Gentleman, printed by John Windet Loud, dwelling on the sign of the Cross Keys at Powell's Wharf, 1605. It is evident that the composition of arrangements for two instruments, which might also have been played one on only, was no invention of the Salzburg violinist, Johannes Hein, Bieber. In 1607, he published another work under the title Captain Hume's Poetical Music, principally made for two bass viols, yet so contrived that it may be played eight several ways upon sundry instruments with much facility, London. This work, of which the British Museum possesses a copy, was dedicated to Anne of Denmark, who was received into the charterhouse as a poor brother in 1629, and known as Captain Hume. His mind seems to have given away, and he died there on April 16, 1645. William Braid flourished about 1615 and spent much of his life out of England. He was appointed violist to the Duke of holstein Gotarp, and of the city of Hamburg at the beginning of the 17th century. In 1619 he seems to have been Kapellmeister to the margrave of Brandenburg and went subsequently to Berlin. He was esteemed a good performer on the gamba, and published in 1609, 1614, and 1621 a number of Paduans or Pavans, Galliards, Canzonets, Volts, Courants, in five and six parts. Berlin, 1621. A great confusion exists regarding the bibliography of his works. Authorities differ as to their titles. They are of unusual interest, as containing many English airs, some of which are mentioned by Shakespeare. He is said to have died at Freakfort in 1647. John Jenkins, born at Maidstone in 1592, was one of the most celebrated composers of music for viols. In early life, he made choice of music as a profession and was appointed musician in ordinary to Charles I. He lived in the family of Sir Hammond Lestrange and instructed his sons in music. In 1660 he gave lessons to the sons of Lord North at a salary of one pound a quarter. Roger North in his autobiography calls him that eminent master of his time. Mr. Jenkins, not conceited nor morose, but much a gentleman. He was appointed musician to Charles II, and spent the last years of his life with Sir Philip Wodehouse at Kimberley in Norfolk, where he died on October 27, 1678. He had for his time extraordinary capacity on the lute, viol, and several bowed instruments, and wrote a great number of compositions for viols, which were not printed, but in 1660 he published twelve sonatas for two violins and a bass, with a thorough bass for the organ or therobow, London, 1660, the first of the kind produced by an Englishman. Indeed, he is credited with having been the earliest English composer of instrumental music, Most of his compositions he called rants or fancies. He also wrote music for Theophila, or Love's Sacrifice, a divine poem by Edward Benlows, Esquire. Several parts thereof set to fit airs by Mr. Jenkins. London, 1652. Many of his manuscripts exist at Christchurch. Oxford Hawkins reports that it is said of him, he was a little man, but had a great soul. Thomas Simpson is another Englishman who stands out conspicuously as a violist and gamba player. In 1615, he was appointed violist in the service of the Prince of Holstein, Schaumburg. He published Opusculum Neuer Pavanen, Galliards, Quarantinnen und Volz, Frankfurt, 1610, besides Pavanen, Volz, and Galliards, Frankfurt, 1611, and a Tafelconcert containing all kinds of cheerful songs for four instruments and a thorough bass, Hamburg, 1621. John Cooper, born about 1570, was a most distinguished performer on and good composer for the viol da gamba. In his youth, he traveled in Italy and returned with the Italianized name of Cooperario. He was master of the children of James I, who was himself not only very musical, but had an excellent judgment on music. He is said to have played eight different instruments, amongst them especially well the harp. Two of Cooper's pupils were the celebrated musicians, William and Henry Laws. The elder, William, besides his other numerous compositions, wrote his great consort, consisting of six suites for two treble viols, two therabos, and two bass viols. Charles I was also Cooper's pupil and played the gamba well. Since he was able to perform the organ fantasies of his master on that instrument, Cooper published a great number of compositions, and among them were many for a gamba. He died during the Protectorate. By far the most eminent English gamba player was Christopher Simpson, who was born at the beginning of the 17th century and died in London between 1667 and 1670. He was a follower of Charles I, and served as a soldier in the army commanded by the Duke of Newcastle against the Parliament. After the defeat of the Royalists, Sir Rob Bowles, an important adherent of this party, granted him a refuge in his house and entrusted to him the education of his son, John Bowles, who was noted as a very clever musical dilettante and player on the gamba. He died in Rome, 1676 where his mortal remains were laid in the Pantheon. Christopher Simpson is the author of several noteworthy instruction books on music, of which we shall mention only those relating to the viola da gamba. The first of them has the title, The Division Violist, or The Introduction to the Playing Upon a Ground, divided in two parts, directing the hands with other preparative instructions, the second Laying open the manner and method of playing or composing division to a ground. London, John Playford, 1659. The title of the second of Simpson's works referred to for the gamba is A Brief Introduction to the Skill of Music in two books. The first contains the grounds and rules of music. The second, instructions for the viol and also for the treble violin. The third edition enlarged, to which is added a third book in, entitled The Art of Descant or Composing Music in Parts by Dr Thomas Campion with annotations thereon by Mr Christopher Simpson London 1660 Thomas Brewer was also a celebrated performer on the gamba who was born in 1611 he was admitted to Christ's hospital at 3 years of age and learnt the viola from his music-master. He composed various fantasias for his favourite instrument, besides airs, catches, rounds, as well as pavens, currants, etc., for which kind of a composition he seems to have been noted. The English gambus of the first half of the 17th century must then have had some considerable reputation abroad, for the Frenchman André Mougar, already mentioned, went about 1620 to London, lived there for nearly four years, and perfected himself after the models of the best gamba players. He does not seem to have had pupils, but his compatriot and rival Hotman, or Hotmann not only taught, but distinguished himself especially by some charming compositions. One of his most noted pupils was Marais, born in Paris on the 31st of March 1656. At first a choir boy in the saint capelle he educated himself further under the direction of Hotman, and then under Saint-Colombe, another excellent Parisian gamba player at that time. Lully gave him instructions in composition. In 1685, Marais became solo gambist at the court chamber music concerts, which position he held until 1725. He died August 15, 1728. Besides Saint Colombe, there were at that time two able French gamba players, namely De Marais and Baison. Marais, however, excelled them in artistic execution. He added to the six strings of the instrument, tuned in the accepted manner, a musical staff in the bass clef. Descending order D A E C G D. Also a seventh the A of the contra-octave. This enabled him to surpass in harmonized playing all his predecessors and contemporaries. He was the first to cause the lowest strings of the gamba to be cased in metal wire so as to give them greater tension and resonance, a step in advance which was soon adopted for the two lower strings of the violoncello. Besides some operas, Murray was the author of the considerable number of gamba compositions which appeared in five parts the fifth of them for one and two gambas with a bass was printed in 1705 out of his 19 children three sons and a daughter devoted themselves to the study of the gamba amongst them the most distinguished for his performances was roland morey roland morey in this year 1725 succeeded his father as solo gambist at the Royal Chamber Music Concerts, the prospect of which he had been assured to him some years previously. Quantz, who heard him in 1726, reported him as a very, very skillful player. He published in 1711 A Nouvelle Méthode de Musique, and in the year 1735 and in 1738 two volumes of gamba pieces with figured bass. The saint colombe mentioned above had, besides Marais, two noteworthy pupils, Rousseau and Hervélois. Jean Rousseau perfected himself as a distinguished gamba player and was actively engaged in Paris during the second half of the 17th century. He also made himself more widely known by the production of two livres de pièces de viol, as well as a gamba school traité de la viol, the latter work appeared in Paris in 1687. K. de Evolois, born about 1670, became, under the direction of Saint-Colombe, an excellent player, and after further study entered the service of the Duke of Orléans. In Amsterdam, he had two books of his compositions published, Pièce pour la basse, viol avec la basse continue, Another French gambist of distinction of the seventeenth century was Antoine Fouqueret. He was born in 1671 in Paris and was one of the performers at the chamber music concerts of Louis Fourteenth. Fouqueret received instruction from his father. At the age of five years, he had already excited the astonishment of the king by his performances, who called him his little wonder. In the year 1745 on June twenty eight. He died in Nantes, whither he had retired upon his pension. His son, Jean-Baptiste Antoine, born on April 3, 1700, in Paris, was esteemed as the most able French gamba player of his time. He also, at five years of age, was heard with such favorable result before Louis Fourteenth that he later on became a member of the Royal Music Society. He again had a son whose Christian name was Jean-Baptiste, born about 1728, who was also a Gambist and published several books of compositions for his instrument. He does not seem, however, to have made himself conspicuous as a performer. Gerber mentions in his musical lexicon in Parisian Gambist of the 18th century of the name Fourquois, or Fourquay, whose delightful playing Quantz, who was in Paris in 1726 admired Possibly this artist may be identified as the Antoine for Curé mentioned above. The art of gamba playing was pursued in Germany with as great or perhaps greater zeal than in England and France, while the pursuit of music by the English and the French was confined chiefly to London and Paris. There were in Germany many courts who admired and cherished with fostering care the art of music, and the result was especially after the tumult of the Thirty Years' War had subsided, a widely spread musical life throughout the whole of the German nation. Amongst the first German players to be mentioned is David Funk, about seven, about 1630. In the Saxon town of Reichenbach, Gerber says of him he was an excellent musician and master of the violin, the viola de gamba, the angelica, the clavier and guitar. And then goes on Funk was in every way a genius. His chief study, which he carried to no small degree of perfection, was that of the law. He was besides a wit and a poet, and was reckoned among the good German poets of that time. As a musician, he was not only a virtuoso on all the above named instruments but he was also a composer and won the applause of the public in a variety of styles, for the church as well as for the chamber. How and where he had gained all these distinctions, there is no account. He was first known as a composer in the year 1670 by the publication of his work on the gamba. This enthusiastic account emanated, according to Gerber's report, from the precantor Johann Martin Steindorf of Zwickau who was personally acquainted with Funk. In the year 1682, Funk gave up his appointment in Reichenbach and accompanied the East Friesland princess into Italy as secretary, where he remained with his mistress seven years. After her death there in 1689, he returned to his native land and, driven by the necessity of beginning again to earn his livelihood, he had no other choice but to accept at Wohnsiedel the miserable post of organist and girl's schoolmaster funk's dissolute character led him to misuse his office as teacher to immoral purposes with the girls entrusted to his care, so that he was compelled by night and fog to fly in order to escape the rage of the parents from that time, funk led a vagabond life. he next betook himself to Schleitz and remained three months at the court there thence. He was obliged to decamp, as he was rigorously pursued by the police of Wohnsiedel. He made his way to Ardenstadt, but did not reach that place. He was found one day lying dead underneath a hedge. At the same time as Funk, the virtuoso August Kunel was at work. Born August 5, 1645, in the little town of Delmenhorst in Oldenburg. From 1695 to 1700, he lived in Kassel, holding a position at the court. During this time, he published sonatas or parts for one or two viol de gamba, together with a bass, 1698. According to Gerber, several of his works should be in the Museum of Kassel. In composition, Kunel was a pupil of Agostino Stefani during his residence at Hanover. His successor in office appears to have been a certain Tilke, for he was from seventeen hundred to seventeen twenty gambist in the castle chapel. Another gambist of the name of Kühnel, Johann Michael, lived in the second half of the seventeenth century, and was engaged at the Berlin court. From here he went in 1717 to Weimar, and later on to Dresden, in the service of Field Marshal Fleming. He seems to have ended his life in Hamburg. Of his compositions there appeared at Rogers in Amsterdam, Sonat uh, 1 et 2 viol de gamba. One of the most important gamba players in Germany, At the end of the 17th and beginning of the 18th century, was Johann Schenk. As he appears to have had his second work, Kunstöffningen, printed at Amsterdam in 1688, consisting of 15 sonatas for the gamba and bass, it may be concluded that he was born out about the middle of the 17th century. Towards the end of it, he was chamber musician in the Elector Palantine service, which post he, however, must have given up at the beginning of the 18th century, for he is said to have settled in Amsterdam about that time. Whether he remained there to end of his life is doubtful, for on the title page of his sixth work, Scherzi Musicali, per la viola da gamba con basso continuo ad libitum, He calls himself Chamber Commissary and Chamberlain of the Elector Palatine. On the other hand, Matasson informs us that he, Schenk, was named Inspector of the Fish Market because he had played the gamba so well. On the whole, he published eight works, chiefly pieces and sonatas for the gamba, as well as for the violin with a bass. A copy of one, of which the title is mentioned above, is preserved in the Royal Library in Zondarshausen. This comprehensive collection, consisting of 101 musical pieces, is dedicated to the Elector-Palatine, Prince William, consequently to the same art-devoted prince to whom Corelli, in the year 1712, dedicated his Concerti Grossi. The title page of the Scherzi Musicali bears no date, but it may be assumed that they appeared between 1692 and 1693, for Schenck published his Opus 3 in the first and his Opus 7 in the latter year, and the collection in question, as already observed, bears six as the number of the work. The compositions which it contains are grouped after the manner of chamber sonatas, or suite. It is true that the author has made use of neither of these terms, But the keys chosen by him leave no manner of doubt as to the description of instrumental compositions to which these scherzi musicali belong. We know that it was usual for all the subjects of a suite at that period to be in the same key. Looking from this point of view at Schenck's work for the gamba, it is apparent that it contains twelve suites, or chamber sonatas, of which some indeed are unusually long. For example, the second suite, in F major, and the fourth, in A minor, consist of 14 pieces. Dances, such as allemands, courants, sarbans, jigs, gavats, and minuets, make up by far the greater portion of the volume. There are also a couple of bourrées, but then the composer gives also chaconnes and pasachays with variations, which in some cases are of great length, as well as rondos and arias. The fourth sonata contains, moreover, a canzone and an albreve, the ninth a fugue, the eleventh the same, and an overture. The greater number of these suites begin with a prelude, though on the contrary the second begins with a fantasia, the fourth with a sonata con basso obbligato, and the eighth with an overture, the ninth with a capriccio, and the twelfth with a caprice. The mode of writing alternates from one to several parts, and the chords, by frequently doubling the intervals, are extended to five notes struck simultaneously. For the notation, shank required four different keys. That is to say, bass, alto, discant, and treble, by which means the compass extends from, in bass clef, low D, to treble clef, high B-flat. We conclude from this that Schenck, like the French gambas Marais, used a gamba with seven strings, and, indeed, the highest of them must have been tuned up to the one-lined G. Schenck must have gone considerably above the seventh fret of the fingerboard in order to reach this twice-lined B-flat. With regard to the artistically musical quality of Schenck's compositions for the gamba, they are mediocre. They bear no comparison with the violin compositions of Corelli of the same period. He succeeded best in the dances, compared with which the more elaborate productions appear poor, and are in some measure incorrect. Especially is this true of the two so-called fugues, which do not rise above feeble attempts at fugues. It is, however, interesting to know that what position Schenck took as one of the best-reputed gamba virtuosos at that time with regard to composition, for his productions give an average idea of the executive capabilities of his contemporaries. At the same time, Schenck's works prove very surely what double stoppings, chords, and figures were possible on the gamba, and in this respect reveal a remarkable richness in various styles of playing. Opposed to this by its simplicity in a technical point of view is a sonata a cembalo obbligato col viol da gamba by Handel. Double stops and chords are altogether omitted. It is true that he has quite another object in view, for Handel treated the gamba not like Schenck as a solo instrument, but as a subsidiary only to carry out a musical idea, thus placing it on a level with the clavier. He chiefly uses also the middle positions of the gamla in a key throughout. Otherwise, this sonata, though solid in form, is of small importance and gives the impression of a composition quickly thrown off for some special occasion. Handel's great contemporary Johann Sebastian Bach treated this instrument, in his three sonatas composed for it and the clavier, in quite Another manner. It is true that with rare exceptions he makes no use of the scored and harmonized technique for the gamba, but the artistic and complete mode of working out by which all his instrumental works are more or less distinguished is also peculiar to the gamba sonatas just mentioned, of which the most important are the first in G major and the third in G minor. Charmingly and with characteristic effect did Bach employ the gamba in his passion music from the Gospel of St. Matthew and St. John, as well as in some of his cantatas. One has only to recall this splendid, deep-touching alto aria. It is finished, in the passion music of St. John. Now at the performance of this sublime work, the gamba part in the aria referred to is played by the violin cello which does not quite express the deeply melancholy, pathetic tone that Bach's music was designed to express. But there is no more appropriate substitute in the modern orchestra for the gamba than the violoncello. One peculiarity of Johann Sebastian Bach is that, with a rare knowledge of art, he made use for his purpose of all the instruments current in his time which adapted themselves in any way to the representation of a special effect. But he further conceived the idea of enriching the choir of instruments by an invention of his own. During his work at Curtin, he constructed the viola pomposa, a stringed instrument of the cello kind, though like the violin for the hand, which had five strings tuned to, in bass clef, low C, G, D, A, and E, in ascending order. Gerber remarks concerning it, the limited way in which the violoncello in Bach's time was handled compelled him, for the quick basses in his works to the invention of the so-called viola pomposa, which, rather longer and higher than a tenor, had a fifth string, E, in addition to the four lower strings of the violoncello, and was placed on the arm. This convenient instrument enabled the player to execute more easily the high and rapid passages which occurred. It may be seen from Bach's suites for violoncello solo, which were originally written for the viola pomposa. The compass of this instrument extended from the great octave low C to the thrice-accented G, four ledger lines above the treble clef. However, the viola pomposa did not attain to general use. It scarcely survived its inventor, and disappeared, as it seems, even before the gamba, out of the musical sphere. Bach's eldest son, Philip Emanuel, C.P.E. as we know him, also wrote for the gamba. Amongst other things, a sonata in three movements with the clavier in G minor which was apparently composed about 1759. The three-part movement in this is solid, though somewhat meager and dry. Amongst the gamba compositions of the previous century, which have lasted up to our time, there is also to be noted an unpublished concerto by Joseph Tartini, the famous founder of the old Paduan violin school, with accompaniment for four-stringed instruments and two horns. Possibly, Tartini wrote it during his three years' residence in Prague, 1723 to 1726, for a German gambist. As about that time, the gamba was still cultivated in Germany with great enthusiasm, though it had been in Italy, thrust into the background of music by the violoncello. The concerto bears all the marks of the author's manner of expression, but it is in the main, quite, as antiquated as all his violin concertos. The introduction and finale are in G. The grave between the two movements is in D minor. The single part theme of the solo, with the exception of a few double stoppings and chords, is throughout written in tenor and bass clef. It is worthy of remark that all the pieces are provided before the full close with cadences, written at full length for the solo instrument after Tartini's usual manner in all his violin concertos. As a contemporary of Schenk, the war minister of Hesse-Darmstadt, Ernst Christian Hesse, who was born on the 14th April 1676 in the Thuringian town of Grossengottern, distinguished himself. Gerber says of him, that he was the first and most famous gambist of his time in Germany. Having spent his school years at Langensalza in Eisenach, he entered the Darmstadt Chancery service as supernumerary and followed the court of his new master in 1694 to Gießen. At the academy there he continued to work and also his legal studies. In 1698 he had permission from the court to go to Paris in order to perfect himself there on the Viola de Gamba, which he had already begun to study in his early life. He remained there three years and had instruction at the same time from the two famous masters, Marie and Fourque. As privately, they were at enmity with each other. He was compelled to give his name to one as Hesse and the other as Zax. Both were delighted with his skill and progress, and severely boasted of the excellent pupil whom he had taught. At last they challenged each other to put to the test in a concert arranged for that object, the proficiency of their pupil. But what was their astonishment on Herr Hess's appearance to find he was the pupil of both? He did his two masters, each in his own manner, special credit, but immediately after the occurrence, left Paris." After his return to the Darmstadt court in the year 1702, Hesse was named secretary of the war department and foreign office. In the following year, he married. In the year 1705, Hesse traveled through Holland and England, and two years later he betook himself to Italy in order to increase his knowledge in the art of composition. Everywhere in his gamba playing excited the greatest admiration. On his return journey from Italy, he visited Vienna, and was heard at court, together with Hebenstreit, famous in his time as the inventor of a dulcimer-like instrument called Pantaleon. The emperor was so charmed with his playing that he presented him with a gold chain and his portrait. In the year 1713, he lost his wife. About the same period, the vacant post of Kapellmeister at the Darmstadt court was given to him ad interim, He then married his second wife, the famous singer Johanna Elitz de Brech. And in 1715, he was promoted to the post of war commissary, and 11 years later to the dignity of minister of war. In 1719, says Gerber, Hesse made another musical tour with his wife to Dresden, to the famous festivals held in honor of the lector's marriage and where several operas by Lotti and Heinichen were represented. They both gained extraordinary honor and abundant appreciation. From this time he devoted himself quietly to the court until his 86th year, and died May 16, 1762, after he had participated in every kind of good fortune. Besides the heirs which he arranged for the church during the time that he had filled the Kapellmeister's vacancy, he left behind him many sonatas and suites for the viola da gamba, which fully bring out all the possibilities of this instrument. Hesse had twenty children, only eight of whom, however, survived him. His eldest son, Luis Christian, became under his father's tuition a clever gambist, and entered as such into the service of the Prince of Prussia in 1768. Besides his son, Hesse formed the excellent gamba player Johann Christian Hextel, born 1699, in the Swabian town of Oettingen. His father, who was Kapellmeister to the prince of Oettingen, and then worked in the same capacity at the ducal court of Merseburg, wished that the boy should study and entered him in 1716 at the University of Halle, where he occupied himself by preference with music and when he returned home he gained his father's permission to devote himself exclusively to the art. <clears throat> the duke of Merseburg announced his willingness to grant him the means of pursuing his studies either in Paris under Marais and Forqueray or at Darmstadt under Hesse's direction. The young Hextel himself decided for Hesse, who took him as a pupil under exceptional conditions. After two years' study, he left Darmstadt, performed at concerts at the courts of Eisenach, Merseburg, Weissenfels, Zerbst, and Köppen, and accepted a post in the Eisenach Kapelle. During the years 1723 to 27, he was traveling in Germany and Holland, played in 1732 before Frederick the Great in Ruppen, while he was still crown prince, and then undertook the post of concert director at Eisenach. When, after the death of its prince, 1742, the Eisenach Band was dissolved through the recommendation of Franz Benda, he was appointed concert director at the court of Strelitz. He filled this place until 1753 and died a year after. Of his numberless compositions, only six sonatas for violin, solo e continuo, 1727, were published at Amsterdam. as noteworthy German gambists belonging to the first half of the 18th century must be mentioned, Emmerling, Hart, and Bellemann. The former of these, born at Eisleben, was in the year 1730 chamber musician and viola da gambist to the margrave Louise of Brandenburg, and also, as Gerber says, instrumental composer. Johann Daniel Hart, born May 8th, 1696 in Frankfurt on the Main, remained at the outset of his musical career for five years in the service of King Stanislaus during his residence at Zweibrücken, and then was chamber musician to the Bishop of Würzburg and the Duke of Franken, Johann Phil Franz von Schödenborn. After four years, he gave up this service and took a post as chamber musician at the württemberg Court. Later on he began, again became concertmeister, and finally capelmeister to the Duke Karl Eugen. He still filled this office at Stuttgart in 1757. Further accounts of him are wanting. Constantine Bellermann, imperial crowned poet, poet laureate. As Gerber calls him, studied as amateur gamba player. He was born in 1696 at Erfurt, there studied law, and also pursued music theoretically and practically, playing the lute, gamba, violin, and flute. He was called the Münden as cantor, and then, in 1741, as rector of the school there. Of his many unpublished compositions, there are amongst them church pieces, cantatas and opera, suites for the lute, concertos for the oboe and the flute clavier concertos with violin and overtures. Here only six sonatas for flute, gamba, and clavier will be noticed. The year of his death is unknown. Amongst the German gambists of the first half of the 18th century, a lady held a prominent position, Dorothea von Ried, one of the five daughters of the Austrian musician Fortunatus Ried. Johann Frauenlob says of them according to Gerber in his essay on learned women that although two of them were still very young one was scarcely eight years old their father had brought them on so well in music that with their two brothers they had given at Vienna, Prague Leipzig, Wittenberg and other places such evident proofs of their talent as to have excited universal admiration for people thought they heard heavenly rather than earthly music. Here also must be mentioned a royal personage, namely the elector Maximilian Joseph, born March 28, 1728, died December 30, 1777. He played the violin and the cello, but was especially an excellent gombist. Bernie who heard him in 1772 says that he needed not to be a great prince in order to discover that his skill his rendering of Adagio and his accuracy in time were perfect. Maximilian also composed. His teacher for composition was Bernasconi. Finally, Karl Friedrich Abel must also be mentioned as a gambist of the first rank. He was born at Kürten, 1725, where his father held the appointment of gamba player in the Hofkapelle. The young Abel, says Gerber, seems to have had instruction as Thomas's scholar at Leipzig, from the great Sebastian Bach, then came in 1748 to the Hofkapelle at Dresden where, during the more flourishing period of Hasse's life and for nearly ten years, he found time enough to form his taste. His small salary and his split with the director Hasse caused him to leave that court, according to Burney, in 1758, with three thalers in his purse. In order to increase this capital, he went on foot to Leipzig, laden with the manuscript of six symphonies, where, through the generosity of the publisher of these symphonies, he became six ducats richer. He now went from one German court to another, and, by repeated good receptions and applause, he regained not a little confidence. Finally he returned to London in 1759, where he found a great patron in the lately deceased Duke of York, who supported him until the formation of the Queen's Band, to which he was appointed in the capacity of chamber musician receiving an annual payment of three hundred pounds. This salary was considerably increased by the music dealers giving him a stipulated sum of £150 for six symphonies. His duty at the Queen's concerts was generally to play the tenor on his gamba, and now and then, in the absence of Bach, to accompany on the piano. For some years he lived in Paris during the summer, where he found, in the house of a fermier general, not only a friendly reception, but also what he liked better than all, the best of wine. On his first appearance in London, his discretion, his taste, and his pathetic manner of expression in the rendering of his adagio so captivated the young virtuosi that they very soon followed his school, with less expenditure of notes and with more successful result. His taste and knowledge especially made him the umpire on all contested points, so that he was looked upon in all difficult cases as an infallible oracle. With his dexterity on the gamba, he also possessed the talent, like many other older virtuosi, of exciting the astonishment and admiration of his hearers by free fantasias and learned modulations. And although he had considerably less power on the harpsichord, yet he knew how to modulate an arpeggio with consummate skill, And in endless changes. Abel remained in London until seventeen eighty two, in which year the desire of once more seeing his brother and his country induced him to return to Germany. It was on this journey that he displayed, both at Berlin and Ludwigslust, the greatness of his talent, his wonderful power of expression, and the richness of his tones, and his stirring execution on the Gamba. The present king, the crown prince of Prussia, before whom he performed in Berlin, presented him with a costly casket and 100 louis d'or. A few years later he stayed some time in Paris on account of the disordered condition of his finances, but he returned again to London and died there on June twenty-two, seventeen eighty-seven, after three days' lethargy, without the least suffering. Shortly before his death he played a recently finished solo which astonished his warmest admirers, His cadences especially were excellent. It is remarkable that amongst Abel's numberless published works, which consist partly of concertos and orchestral pieces, and partly of chamber music, there are no compositions for the gamba. This must be explained by the fact that the zenith of gamba playing had been reached, and the art was on its decline at the beginning of the second half of the 18th century. It went out of fashion, and with it also gamba music, and in its place only violoncello compositions were in request. In many ways this change was as much lamented as was the case at the banishment of the lute to Cabinets of Curiosities or the Lumber Room. After Abel there were no German gambas of conspicuous importance to mention, From the middle of the last century, the gamba was more and more neglected, in consequence of the violoncello being brought forward, and the younger geniuses devoted themselves by preference to this instrument, which approached more nearly to the violin, than at the summit of all instrumental music. Amongst stringed instruments, which had shared the same fate as the gamba, belonged the viola bastarda and the viola di bodorne, english baritone the first instrument was in shape somewhat thicker than the gamba and was provided with six or seven strings in order to increase the resonance as many steel strings were introduced under the fingerboard and bridge which were tuned to the same pitch as those above like the viola do another variety of the gamba was the baritone which was cultivated in the last century In Leopold Mozart's Violin Tutor is found the following description of it. This instrument has from six to seven strings like the gamba. The neck is very broad and the back part hollow and open. Down, which nine or ten brass or steel strings are run beneath, which are touched and pinched by the thumb, so that at the same time as the principal part is played with the bow, on the upper cat gut strings, The thumb by striking the strings stretched under the neck of the instrument can play the bass, and therefore the music must be arranged specially for it. Moreover, it is a most agreeable instrument. From this description, it is evident that the baritone was a bass instrument resembling the viola d'amore. The baritone, in its time, was much liked in Austria. Several Austrian composers, as Sibler, Weigel, and Pichl, at their head Joseph Haydn, composed for this instrument. The latter, Franz Joseph Haydn, was incited to it by his benefactor, the Prince Esterhazy, who looked with particular favor on the baritone. Haydn wrote no less than one hundred seventy-five pieces for it. The tuning of the strings on the fingerboard of the baritone was on the same principle as that of the gamba. The Viennese Anton Lidl, who was born about 1740, was much esteemed as a most distinguished baritone virtuoso. Gerber says of him that he rendered still more perfect his instrument, which had been invented about the year 1700. It is in shape like the viola da gamba, except that it has brass strings at the back, which are played at the same time with the thumb. These lower strings he increased to 27, and the semitones were played with them. He must have been an extraordinary artist on this instrument. The author of the Almanac of 1782 says, His performance united the most charming sweetness to German vigor, the most surprising syncopations with the most harmonious melody. According to Burney, Lidl was no longer living in 1789. Up to 1783, he had published in Amsterdam and Paris duets, quartets, and quintets, altogether seven works. His compositions for the gamba were not published. The baritone disappeared with the gamba in the course of the second half of the last century from musical practice. The same change took place in Italy about the same time, or somewhat earlier, when a lively interest in the violoncello was aroused there by Franciscello, of whom we shall speak farther on. It appears indeed that in the land of the arts, as the quotations already given from Mogar papers inform us, no predilection had prevailed for the higher study of the gamba either for the reason that among stringed instruments the cultivation of the violin, which from the seventeenth century had decidedly usurped the first place in the study of music, was chiefly pursued, or that the Italian composers did not specially concern themselves with the gamba. As a matter of fact, so far as can be perceived, with the exception of Tartini, no noteworthy Italian composer considered it worth his while to bring it into the field of creative activity. Besides Ferbosco, of whom mention has already been made, There are amongst the famous Italian bass players and gambas to be named Alessandro Romano, with the cognomen della viola, and Teobaldi Gatti. Romano was born about 1530 in Rome, and in 1560 was a singer in the papal Sixteen Chapel. He later became a monk of the monastery of Mount Olivet under the name of Giulio. Cesare. But he did not find his sojourn there agreeable, for he was at strife and contention with one or other of the monks of his order through incompatibility of temper. His compositions, published between the years 1572 and 1579, consist of Canzone alla Napolitana, for five voices and a book of motets in five parts. Teobaldi Gatti born at Florence about 1650, not only distinguished himself as a gamba player, but also made himself known in his time as an operatic composer. In the latter respect, he was influenced by Lully, whose first opera overtures so impressed him that he resolved to go to Paris in order to do homage to his illustrious countrymen. Lully, who was flattered, showed his gratitude for this attention by making Gatti a member of the Parisian Opera Orchestra, which post he filled for nearly... 50 years, uninterruptedly. He died in 1727 in Paris. There were published in 1696 twelve Air Italian by him, two of which are duets. As skillful Italian gambists are conspicuous, also Marco Fraticelli and Carlo Ambrosio Lunati of Milan with the cognomen Il Gobbo della Regina. The latter came to England during the reign of James II. Nothing further is known concerning either of these instrumentalists. It is worthy of remark in this place that the famous Italian singer Lenora Baroni, born about 1610, was, according to Mogar's testimony, a clever therbo and gamba player. As such, she was in the habit of accompanying herself in singing. It has already been pointed out that the viola da gamba, which for nearly 300 years for the basso di viola or Gerle's great violin, was in fact a gamba, although as yet of a somewhat primitive form, had played an important part, both as orchestral and solo instrument, was replaced by the violoncello in the course of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Subsequently, when the violin as a leading instrument in the melody usurped the place of the cornet, zinken, and the discante viola, French, pardessus de viol, it became necessary to provide an equivalent for the bass part of string quartets, as the tone of the gamba in ensemble playing proved too weak and thin in proportion to the violin. Matheson says it in his Neu-Eröffneten-Orchestre, which appeared in 1713, the plaintive viola da gamba, in French bas de viol, properly so called, is a beautiful delicate instrument, and he who wishes to signalize himself on it must not keep his hands long in his pockets. Its chief use in concerts is only for the strengthening of the basses, and some indeed pretend to execute a thorough bass on it, of which up to now I have never seen a good attempt." In opposition to this last somewhat sarcastic remark of Mattheson is what Gerber states a hundred years later, volume 1, page 6 of his new musician's lexicon, concerning the gamba. He there says, It is remarkable in the history of music that his, Abel's, instrument was buried with him in the year 1787 in total oblivion, the indispensable gamba without which for a hundred years neither church nor chamber music could be arranged, which in all public and private concerts had the exclusive right to be heard before all other instruments from the beginning to the end, and which, therefore, like caskets, must not only be exquisitely finished in every size, large and small, but was also ordered, bought, and paid for, adorned with the most costly artistic carvings, ivory, tortoiseshell, gold, and silver, then available. In the course of time, there will be no vestige left in the whole of Europe of this instrument, once so universal and admired. Henceforth, it will have to be sought for amongst the old woodcuts in Praetorius, or specimens of it, stringless and worm-eaten, in a royal music chamber. Another sad proof, how greatly Apollo is overruled by the goddess Fashion. The taste of our forefathers for these soft, modest, humming viola tones is also remarkable. They were a quiet, contented, peace-loving people. In the present time, the instruments for our musicians cannot be chosen sufficiently high and shrill. It is plain that although Gerber himself played the cello, this instrument was also known to him and he had not only remarked the disproportion between the tone of the violins and those of the gambas in the orchestra with regard to strength, but also the circumstance that, by the creative faculty of Haydn and Mozart in the region of higher musical instrument, the gamba had become wholly superfluous. The superior qualities of the violoncello to the gamba as a solo instrument had escaped him, all the conspicuous success of cello players in the second half of the last century— could not have remained unknown to him. It seems, therefore, as if Gerber had a special predilection for the gamba, a taste which only a few of his contemporaries shared with him. Gerber's confident assertion that the French priest Tardieu of Tarascon had invented the violoncello in the year 1708 is simply to be relegated to the region of fable, for the instrument had already existed long before in Italy. Feti remarks, page 47, in his article Antoine Storvary, Paris, 1857, the violoncello had already been mentioned by Praetorius in his Syntagma Musicum, 1614-1620, to 1620, which is a mistake, for the work referred to contains neither the name nor the illustration of the instrument, but the violoncello, must already have been in use about this time in Italy, for according to Robert Eitner, it is mentioned in a publication of the year 1641, and then in a work of Freschi's, which appeared in 1660 as Violoncino. In Arresti's Sonatas in Two and Three Parts of the year 1665, it is called Violoncello. It was of great importance for the Italian instrument makers to produce a bass instrument of the violin type, which had already been in use from the middle of the 16th century, and this certainly happened towards the end of that period. This is proved by the Brescian Gaspard Dasalo, fifteen fifty to 1612 Whether Andreas Amati the founder of the famous Cremona School, born 1520, died 1580, constructed similar instruments appears doubtful. Apparently, the gamba, as well as the violin served, as guides for the proportions in the construction of the violoncello. From the violin were borrowed the outlines of the sound box, the arched back, which the more ancient gambas whose backs were flat did not have also the F-holes and the fingerboard without frets. From the gamba were taken the large proportions of the violoncello. It was at first constructed like the gamba, in smaller and larger dimensions, until Stradivarius established a standard size. Whether the most famous German violin maker, Jakob Steiner, born 1621, died 1683, made violoncellos is much doubted by experts, It is, however, certain that he made gambas, which were often converted into violoncello's. According to Eitner's previously mentioned assertion, it appears that the last named instrument was at first called violoncino, and a little while after that violoncello. The Italian affixes ino and "ello." have a diminutive meaning, and therefore both names have an identical signification. As violino is the diminutive of viola, violoncino and violoncello are the diminutives of violone. The tenor of our day, which also at that time sprang from the alto or tenor viola after the pattern of the violin, received the name of viola d'arco, which means arm viola. Besides the viola da braccio, there was also a viola da spallo, which was not placed beneath the chin, but rested on the left shoulder. Concerning this bass instrument, Matheson remarks The viola da spallo, or shoulder viola, has a particularly grand effect in accompaniment from the, its penetrating and pure tone. A bass can never be more distinctly and clearly brought out than by this instrument. It is fastened by a ribbon to the chest. And thrown over the right shoulder but has nothing which can stop or prevent it in the smallest degree in resonance. To return to the violoncello, it offered the player two very important advantages over the gamba. First, the finger technique was wholly unlimited because the fingerboard had no frets, which in regard to runs and cadences, as well as changes of positions, opposed a substantial hindrance to the gamba player then the player on the violoncello could obtain more tone than on the gamba, by drawing the bow more forcibly over a single string. The upper edge of the bridge of the gamba, over which the strings passed, was so flatly cut for harmonized or part-playing that it was necessary to avoid a strong tone, lest the neighboring strings should thereby be sympathetically affected. But the bridge of the cello, on the contrary, was of a more convex form, whereby playing in parts was indeed precluded. As is known on the cello as on the violin, only double stops and chords are possible, and the last only broken up. In this manner, the violoncello was used formerly at the performances of operas and oratorios as solo accompaniment of recitatives, for which, of course, it is requisite that the player should have a thorough knowledge of music theoretically, as he had to execute at-sight figured basses. Corette gives already in his violoncello Tutor, 1741, instructions for accompanying recitative. These directions are, however, by no means exhaustive. Such are first found in the Cello tu- Tutor compiled for the Paris Conservatoire by de Bayeux. La Vassure, Cartel Cattel, and Baudiot, which appeared in print in 1804. Therein it said, In order to accompany well a recitative, a complete knowledge of harmony and of the violoncello is necessary. One must be intimate with figured basses, and know how to execute them readily. He who can do this has reached the summit of art, for it is presupposes a great deal of necessary information, and still more the power of judging how to turn it to account. If the bass player is not certain of the resolutions of discords, if he is unable positively to indicate to the singer when he is to make a complete or a broken cadence, if in his concords he does not know how to avoid forbidden fifths and octaves, he is in danger of confusing the singer, and in any case he will produce a most disagreeable effect. As in good compositions, a recitative always follows a well-defined progression and adapts itself to the character of the part, to the situation portrayed, and to the voice of the singer in the accompaniment. 1. The strength of the tone must be regulated according to the effect to be produced, for the accompaniment must sustain and embellish the singing, and not spoil and drown out. 2. The chord must not be repeated, except when the harmony changes. 3. The accompaniment must be quite simple, without flourishes or runs. Good accompanying always has in view the best rendering of the subject, and when the player allows himself to fill up certain gaps with a short interlude, this must only consist of the notes of the chord. 4. The chord must be played without arpeggio, ordinarily, in the following manner. Here follows an illustration in bass clef, the notation in figured bass, a low G and a low C. So we have a G7 chord that is broken with G, and then a double stop of F and B, played separately, and then a low C, and thereafter a G, and then a double stop of E and C. Baudio in his Violoncello tutor, which appeared later than the above, makes the following remark concerning the accompaniment of recitative. It sometimes happens that the actors linger on the scene without reciting, speaking, be it that they have forgotten the text of what they have to recite, or that for some other reason they are silent. At times their appearance on the boards is delayed. In such cases, the accompanist, i.e. the cellist, can perform short preludes and embellishments at his pleasure. But he must be modest about it, and employ his ornaments at the right moment, and always with taste. To the art of violoncello making the same applies as to the violin. The productions of the Italian makers surpass those of all other nations, amongst them those manufactured by Nicolas Amati, Stradivari, and Gius. Guanari del Gesù are most to be preferred, and justly so. Stradivari and Amati made their cellos of two different sizes. The larger one was formerly called il basso, while the smaller one distinguished as the violoncello proper. The latter is the more preferable as being more manageable. In these days, it is used as a valuable model. As to the violoncello bow, which had the following form in the first half of the 18th century, its progress went hand-in-hand with that of the violin bow. The improvements which were successively made on the latter were effected on the former. The greatest perfection reached by the bow was the work of the Frenchman François Tourte. To this day, he has never been excelled in this department. See Appendix A. Illustration of Early Bow Type The fabrication, however, of good violin and cello bows has laterally become very general, and especially in Mark Neukirchen, the manufacture of bows, as well as instruments, has received a great impulse. End of Introduction to the History of the Violin Cello by Vasilevsky. (laughs)